Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we will be exploring the landscape of cervical cancer screening and prevention through our chat with Dr. Nimi Ramanujam, Director of the Center of Global Women's Health Technologies at Duke University and Founder and Chief Scientific Advisor at Kala Health Foundation. Kala Health strives to sustainably improve women's access to cancer prevention through women-inspired technologies for cervical cancer screening for low-resource settings. Kala Health's technologies have been tested in over eight countries across four continents, and one of their devices obtained FDA clearance in 2018. Kala Health's Wish Revolution was selected among the 100 finalists for the MacArthur 100 and Change $100 million grant. Nimi, thank you so much for joining us today. I just having like read through your background and your story and like the numerous accolades that you've received, you have such an impressive background and story. So I'm really looking forward to just kind of hearing it from beginning to where it is now. So to start at the very beginning, could you share with us how you first became interested in women's health technologies and cervical cancer. You know, at some point in your career, you sort of have, you're you're sort of liberated, right? You have to go through the ranks. And at some point you have the license to not do what you're told. And uh, that's when I thought, you know, what do I really want to do? I've always worked in women's health research, but I think there was this sort of point where I saw the artistic side and the technical side sort of come together in a way that could be impactful. So I thought, you know, the nexus of those three would really be interesting and something that I could create rather than be told how to create. So it was my composition, which I was very excited by. Awesome. And through this like thought process and, and such, how did the idea of Call of Health come to be? So about... I would say seven years ago, I was sort of tired of being too focused on myself because I think that's what happens. At some point, you sort of think about the bigger world and how you can make a meaningful contribution. So I remember I just wanted to start the center called, you know, Center for Global Women's Health Technologies. I had no idea what I would do, but like anything, you have to be flexible and see what works and what doesn't work. And so through that process and interacting with my students, I decided that I wanted to figure out how to close the gap um, between where women live and where healthcare is. And oftentimes they're not co-located. In this country, the US, I think there's some level of sophistication that an education that allows women to access these resources, whether it's for sexual and reproductive health or cervical cancer prevention. But in many countries around the world, you can't take that for granted. In fact, not only is the quality of treatment bad, but access to that treatment is very, very low. And as a result, women show up with with, uh, advanced disease, whatever that might be. And because there's a sort of many of these societies are patriarchal, that makes it even harder for them to get the treatment they want. So it's like a triple hit. And 
So I, I began to realize this as I, I, I think I developed a technology and I, and I took it to, we took it to Haiti and um, this was right after the earthquake, nothing worked. And I think it was like an aha moment when I realized you really need to understand the context. And I come back to music, right? If you play a piece, it's kind of dry, unless you know something about the composer, you know what sort of brought that piece to life. So I think that moment for me was the time that I pivoted and thought, how can we use our talents to create impact rather than just make a lot of money? So we ended up designing a number of technologies, and I'm really proud of one that we developed that uh, replaces the speculum, which I think also is a is a symbolic of you know cultural uh, taboos that have persisted in the 21st century. So we had this interesting experience where the students who were doing their PhD research actually were able to go from concept to a practical technology that could be used. I, I never expected that. And then the next question was, how do we get it to the finish line? And that opened up new questions and new opportunities to learn. And then we realized at some point that there was a, a bottleneck. We could no longer do things at Duke because of conflict of interest, right? We had done everything we could through you know, NIH grants and USAID grants, but there was this point when we had to leave Duke. And so we wrote grants and we got a substantial amount of funding and we thought, okay, we need to put a stake in the ground and that's how Kala Health was born. So it was interesting in that most people, I think, start the organization and then look for funding. In our case, it was just the reverse. And that gave us a lot of confidence that we wouldn't be beholden to investors or others who can shape what you do. And oftentimes their uh, goals are not aligned with ours. So this was the perfect opportunity for us to say, we can do this on our own terms. And we've been really learning all the steps from manufacturing to design, to product development, to regulatory. And it's amazing because students get to experience that directly. And so they're not gonna be intimidated when it's time for them to, you know, essentially create impact. Got it. That, no, that's a very interesting point about wanting to pursue a certain idea that you have, and but then also you need to think about funding, but then you're able to kind of flip it and then kind of take ownership over your ideas and pursue it. And it's good that you had that excitement around this mission as well. So I'd like to dig a little deeper into the solutions that Kala Health is offering and how they how they complement each other. I think this is a great time to tell you about the narrative for cervical cancer prevention because I think it's emblematic of other disparities. So if you take a step back, right, so we know how to prevent cervical cancer, all the tools are available. So there's no reason for anyone to die of it. But, you know, what's cool about that is you know the biology's been worked out you know what works. And then you can focus on the other barriers like social, um, economic, other structural barriers. So what we were inspired by is the fact that here we have this three-tiered model for how people get access to health, right? Screening, diagnosis, treatment. That's true in many instances, but definitely true in cancer prevention or cancer control. And so essentially what we envisioned is consolidating the three steps into one. And the way that would happen is we would shift screening that's in a health facility to a woman's home where she can do the screening and then have a see and treat model um, in a local health facility near her home. 
and sort of bookend that, there was there are two technologies that are already available. There's a molecular test that's very sensitive that detects the HPV virus, which causes cervical cancer, and that's been commercialized. On the other end, there's a treatment that is an ablation treatment that is very effective in treating these precancerous diseases, but the middle part was missing. And so we thought about how we can use our skills in imaging and AI and reimagine the tools that have been so successful in high-income countries. And basically the gateway between screening and treatment is imaging. And right now in most places that's done with the naked eye, whereas in the US it's done with this very sophisticated microscope and an expert. So we thought maybe if we can just figure that piece out, we can connect all the dots. We can bring screening to a woman's home where she could get the molecular HPV test and maybe even imaging. And then she could walk down the the street, hopefully, and then get diagnosis with another imaging device and then treatment. And so we developed this technology called the pocket colposcope and and it looks like a tampon. And, And one might ask, why is this less than a pound technology as good as a 150 pound technology that's like $15,000, whereas ours 500, like what is the secret? And it's quite simple. It sort of takes you back into history, right? So the speculum was born out of inventions that happened in the antebellum South 200 years ago. And the way it typically works is it's kind of like in a hospital, you have one innovation and then you stack others on top of that. And you don't really debunk old models, you just add to them, you know, sustaining innovations. And we thought, What if you just scratched all of that and said, let's look at the problem from a 21st century perspective. And then we realized that the key problem with this big microscope called the colposcope is there's a distance, like about a foot between the cervix that you're trying to look at and the provider. And that was because you don't want the speculum to obstruct your field of view. And we thought, what if you can put the colposcope inside the speculum? And that proximity gives you image quality that's on par with that 150 pound device, but it's, you know, like a a wand and anybody can use it. And with an algorithm, you can replace the gynecologist and the colposcope with a virtual expert and the pocket colposcope. So that was the way to essentially say, if a woman goes to a health facility, she can get a diagnosis with the pocket colposcope and the algorithm, and then she can be immediately treated. So that was sort of the way we envisioned it. And now we put it to practice and have done clinical trials and are doing clinical trials to make sure that we can fit it appropriately into the health healthcare system because it varies across the world. And then we were inspired by the pocket colposcope to push a little further. We said, could we actually use this tampon-like device to basically obviate the need for a speculum? And, you know, like many things, you find your, your aha moments in grocery stores. So I'd seen a diva cup and happened to see, you know, some kala lilies in a bouquet, both of them at Whole Foods. And I had this amazing student that was just willing to work with me and figure out how we could come up with solutions. Long story short, we figured out you can't have moving parts. You need something that's like passive. And so we essentially created a support system for the pocket colposcope that literally looks like the kala lily flower with a pedicle. So the pedicle has the camera and then the kala lily flower shape essentially is asymmetric and gives you the perfect design to reposition the cervix like the speculum can, which is incredibly hard, by the way, 
you can imagine that all the women who tried it in the US, Ghana, and now in Peru basically said, can I, how can I get one, right? Because all of a sudden you're empowered and it's also, there's less discomfort. And so we thought, oh my God, we can give women choices. So they get the self-HPV testing, which can be done at home. It can be done at the clinic. It can be done at home. And it's been proven that when it can be done at home, more women screen themselves. And we thought, why don't we give them choices? They can take the coloscope that's speculum-free and do it in their home if they don't want to go to the clinic, or they can use a pocket colposcope in the clinic. In other words, some women may pr prefer to do it at home. Some women may prefer to do it in the clinic, but we're giving them choices so that ultimately it's one visit, right? They get screened at home and they come to the clinic for the rest of the care, regardless of how they choose to do the imaging. And so that was the solution. And now we've put it into action through a initiative that we have called Women Inspired Strategies for Health or WISH. And it's really exciting because now we're sort of, we have the funding to sort of bring all of this evidence together and to put it and put it into a package. And we're excited to see how that can inform new models of care. So I want to ask you more about the designing process. You kind of mentioned the inspiration that you had, you know, at Whole Foods. But what was the design process like in terms of getting feedback, talking to women? Did you have like a design research process like that? In the most basic sense, we do what's called human-centered design. You know, you try to understand the barriers by talking to people, preferably people who are experiencing the barriers, you know, people who live, you know, at the level of the problem. And then you use your creative energy to think of ideas. I, I don't think you can get it from a book. And then you have to deliver and then you know, iterate on your, on your solutions. So you know, I did not look at a book for the solution. I was in Moshi, Tanzania. I went to a clinic, probably one of the few clinics where women could come and most of the time they didn't. And I knew that I could only at the time address a technological barrier. And so when I talked to the provider, he mentioned something about getting rid of the speculum. And that was maybe the first sort of inflection point for me. And when I came back, you know, it's one of those things where you see something and then you have an idea. And I would say, you know, keep an open mind. So I happened to see uh, a little pen-like camera that my colleague had purchased from Taiwan. And I thought, wow, what if that could be the technology? And then there's a spy pen. And, you know, you start to see things because you're sort of thinking about the problem. And so once I saw that camera and then my student looked at the spy, cam, spy pen, which has obviously a camera and a USB charging port, that was the beginning. So we thought we could just stick it in and voila, you would see the cervix. Let's just put the LEDs like in a ring and then put the camera right in the middle, just a regular camera and bring it up really close. And... You know, with a few innovations, for example, to make it hydrophobic, because uh, obviously you're in a very humid cavity and, and, and sort of thinking through some of the innovations at the tip, we were able to really put the business end on this tampon-like device, like a spy pen. And so that's how the pocket colposcope was born. And I'd be lying if I said, oh, in a year, we just figured it out. It took a number of years to get the design right. And that's where the iteration happened. But we had to come up with that original idea. It wasn't like someone said, build a tampon colposcope. And I always wanted to build a colposcope that didn't require speculum. And I failed at the beginning, right? Because we realized you can't see a cervix without a speculum. 
And I had a student that um, joined my group and I told her, you know, we got to figure a way out. And if I showed you the number of devices that she built, you know, being in a torture chamber, I mean, first we try to replace the blades of a speculum with this mini speculum. And I mean, let's just say it this way. It's very hard to test that only in the lab. Um, so you have to, you can't do that in a completely scientific way. You kind of have to, you know, do it with a human being. And I ended up volunteering. And there were times when, you know, the, the prototype would just catch on to the cervix and you're like, yikes. Through that process, <laughs> we realized you can't have anything move because imagine if it falls or breaks or whatever. And as I said, then you know, she had thought about this flower petal, um, you know, flower, and we tried all kinds of designs to open and close, like, you know, you know, sort of open and close a flower. And so it took years, you know, it was very frustrating. Nothing came to us until we thought about, again, instead of a spy pen, another sort of another idea based on something ubiquitous, and then brought that back to the table. But if I said to you, oh, we thought about a flower the entire time, it wouldn't be true. So it's almost like every time you fail, you have more opportunities, right? Because you expand what you can do. And, you know, all these design processes, you know, you're getting to this human-centric design where you look at it and you're like, wow, that makes so much sense. But so many, you know, years um, went into it, so many different trials went into it. So when you got to that design, I'm sure you had to patent in some way. From what I know, you have more than 20 patents. So can you share your experience with the process of obtaining the patents um, for these different devices? Um, luckily at Duke, we have, you know, a tech transfer office. So they basically do the heavy lifting. I mean, we have to work, I mean, they basically have a team of lawyers that they outsource it to. And so you basically submit the initial idea and they make the decision of whether that idea is something they want to move forward. And at some point you have to go through this very long document, create it in lawyer speak, if you will, and then work with them to make sure you include all of the critical elements. And ideally you ask for more, you try to cover more generalized features. So someone can't say, well, I made this little change and now I have a new technology. So that typically happens like maybe a year after your initial uh, invention disclosure. And then um, once you get the application in place, it takes several years for someone to review it, a patent office to review it and come back with critiques or, you know, a favorable response. And then you have to like reduce the number of claims you make. And it's just, again, another iterative process. And then ultimately uh, what you want to do is uh, file for international patents if you want to protect yourself in those countries or protect your IP in those countries. And typically, you want to choose countries where they have good manufacturing facilities because those are the ones that can sort of quickly, you know, copy. And so we basically make that decision. And the challenge is that with every decision you make that's that requires more work, you increase the cost. And ultimately, the company that's licensing the technology bears that cost. And we license the technology. So one of the, I think the biggest challenges is making sure we have enough resources to essentially keep up with the patent costs that we now have to take over. And that is very hard to cover with grant funding. Uh, that's not typically what grants cover. So you're trying to balance to make the company move forward while at the same time, you know, meeting your obligations. So that's how that works, at least from <laughs> my experience. Yeah, I think the, the question of sustainability is always at the forefront of most founders' minds when they're considering doing a global health work and catering to underserved populations. And 
sort of give us more on being able to reach sustainability for Kala Health. There are many business models for sustainability. You can use like a social franchise retail model. You know, one example where the rich can pay more and then you subsidize what can go to people who can't afford, which is, you know, I think there's a lot of businesses that do that. The other is you have enough evidence to where the government says, hey, we've made these public investments and they're not giving us a big return on investment. So we want to adopt a model that's going to save us money and save more lives. We haven't generated all of that. We have generated like evidence at each step, but we haven't put it together. And that's another way to sustain it. If the regional or national government basically says we will pay for it. So ultimately, the sustainability comes from who will pay for it. So we're, we're testing out different models. We haven't figured it out. I think the first question is, how well does it do compared to status quo? How cost-effective is it? And um, how does it need to change policy in order for it to be actually implemented? And once we kind of address that, I think we will have the answer for sustainability. But I would also say that scalability is another issue. Like, what's the point of sustainability if it's not reaching all the people in the world? And so you also have to pressure test it, hopefully in different healthcare environments where you can say, okay, I have the same, I can use this playbook. And the playbook could be some sort of framework or model that you can just say, all right, we have data. Maybe you plug in your data and see what kinds of adjustments you need to make. So maybe it's a simpler way to scale than taking like, than starting over each time you're going to a new setting. So the two S's, we have to think about that every step of the way. That's very helpful. Just thinking about sustainability and scalability being driven by pretty much people who pay. And that's very fundamental. But another aspect, even if you have a sustainable enterprise, you do need, I guess, a regional buy-in or local buy-in from local physicians, in, in your case, or women even, who are going to actually use the device. So how did you go about building partnerships in-house, so you know, abroad, in India, Tanzania, et cetera, in all the countries you're sort of operating in to allow for integration and adoption of your of your devices? Yeah, that's a very good question because, you know, when you say, ooh, you know, you have innovative technology, that's just right. the beginning, right? There's so many steps to have impact and that's where the sustainability and scale comes from. But the main thing is who are your customers and do they buy into these ideas? I will tell you the easiest part uh, first which is you need to work with champions who people respect in that, in that setting. I mean, you can't come in and say, I've got an idea and I want it. I want you to use it because you need it because they don't trust you or they may not trust you. So the partnerships were key. And then the question is, how do you develop meaningful partnerships? And you know, we weren't strategic about that initially because we had no idea. And then over time, I was more strategic and I said, we need to interact and partner with people that have had worked in the government and who have um, influence on healthcare and who are also well-known internationally. And so one example of that is uh, working with a former health minister in uh, Peru who has a, a lot of a international presence, but at the same time is very, very passionate about changing the cervical cancer landscape in Peru. And she created this program called HOPE where women go through self-HPV testing, they have a whole model in which community providers from that particular region can essentially go to their peers and say, you know, here's education on cervical cancer. 
here's the HPV test. We're going to charge you a very small amount because that's going to be equivalent to the bus ride you take to go to a health facility. And then they basically take the test, they drop it off, that's read, and then they get a message. Of course, the bottleneck is what do you do next? That model actually is sustainable, or at least will be sustainable. It'll reach a break-even point when they're able to essentially show that they can get the retail part and the social part sort of working in harmony so that they can essentially use that model to make further investments. Um, so not only has she worked in the government, she's an MD-PhD who has a lot of experience in epidemiology. So she's you know, a scientist as well. She knows clinical trials and she has a, a social understanding of what women need. And it was through her really that I realized, you know, when you develop solutions that are centered around women, they really want it because there's so many reasons they cannot make it to a healthcare facility. I mean, it's an opportunity cost. So when we took our coloscope to Peru right before the quarantine, it was in early March, I think, we gave it to these hope ladies who took it home and used it. And they all came back so excited. And some of them didn't even know if they'd seen the cervix. I mean, I certainly didn't know, even though I had, and that just tells you how naive we can be about our own bodies. And the reaction we got in Ghana and Peru was just overwhelming. First, there was trepidation because people don't know. And uh, luckily we had a Ghanaian student who went to Ghana and we have Patty Garcia who introduced it to the people in her community. And I can tell you that these women wanted to buy it right then and there. Like they couldn't believe that they had autonomy, that they could do it privately. And so we, we think we have a good handle on that, but I think the bigger barrier is policy. So if you think about it, right, you're at Yale getting an MD and imagine I said to you, oh, we don't really need you. <laughs> we need to task shift and everything you do, a nurse is going to do or a midwife is going to do. I don't know how you would feel, but many of the, the physicians in those communities feel like their jobs are threatened and not without good reason. And so we need to figure out how to make that work. It's not easy. Just because you can save lives, it doesn't mean everyone buys into that model. So it's very complicated. And that's why I said, you know, come back in 10 years, because if we're successful, we'll be thrilled. But if we can learn more and use that in a way that can help us move forward and get close to the finish line, that's also a great outcome. You raise a, a ton of good points. And I think sort of addressing the the challenging of, of jobs and physician roles, I would, you know, argue that our, our role as hopefully a, a future physician, I don't know if I can speak to, you know, current MDs, but it's for the patient. And I think given the variety of healthcare disparities powered by socioeconomic status and all this craziness that is sort of beyond the biological, anything that can improve healthcare for these individuals is, is much needed and appreciated. I think uh, another thing I wanted to sort of mention was give us the, the rundown of how you navigate mentoring students. Fundamentally, mentoring is about, I mean, this is going to sound so cliche, but empowering people. And what I mean by that is when someone says, what are your expectations? I ask them, what are your expectations? When they say, what should I do? I say, well, what do you want to do? Because I think if you don't have ownership, it's hard to embrace it. That's my view. And so I think my empowering or mentoring style is to do less. Be there always to support students when they need it, but really treat them as colleagues that somehow there's no, well, I mean, there is some power dynamic. If they don't do a good job, I guess I can't graduate them. But really have a lateral organization where, you know, sit around a table 
And I have students telling me, I'm not going to do what you said, or, you know, (laughs) defy me by doing something without telling me. And those are the times when I think we make the breakthroughs, when we clash on views and um, students don't feel like they have to listen. And that, I think, makes them even more passionate because it's their idea. It's that they're putting on the table. They're taking the risk. And I will tell you, I've had three students uh, in the last five years. um, So, you know, which is, I think, significant, you know, maybe 30% of the students I have in any given year who have all led to solutions that we're commercializing. And I think that's huge. And I think it's not because I have these amazing ideas, but what I do have is the ability to go around the world and look at the problems in different communities and then bring it back to the students. And um, I'll start with my idea of a solution and then they will talk about their ideas. And before you know it, we've come up with so many ideas that then we have to cull it down. And I think that's a really um, powerful process to have everyone engaged and um, to let students see that they can really have meaningful impact at the end of their PhD, which is not often the case. And some of my students decide to work for the company. Um, I have the Ghanaian student, Mercia Sieru, who's at MIT now, but she wants to come back and be a part of the company. She's already been doing pitches there and raising money. And so whether they do that or not, it doesn't matter, but you want them to continue along that path. And I think that's the biggest legacy we can have is spawn new interest and have them carry it to the next level. And so that propagation is what I think is incredible. I think especially like for our mission as an organization, it's to sort of give folks like the experience of of starting a company early as opposed to later on. I know there's you know debate about when's the ideal time to start, but I think sort of getting the bug early is is really fundamental. Um, so you have the liberty to kind of envision solutions and scale them. And I think it's just amazing to hear about the fact that, you know, you preside as this mentor to them. And I think, you know, you're making a huge impact. Kind of building upon this topic on mentorship and such. So you have maintained your status as a professor at Duke. What have been some of like the the benefits and maybe some drawbacks of being both a professor and an entrepreneur? Time. Um, (laughs) Let me state the obvious. Um, Well, I love teaching. I love research, so I should do what I love. And I think that Duke has so many resources that talented students, um, seed funding, mentoring, you know, for entrepreneurship and many other things that I think, and the brand, which really helps to get the technology to a level where there's visibility. And you can do a lot of that, not marketing per se, but you can get a lot of visibility around a technology so you can continue to raise money and continue that cause. And I think that would be very hard to do in a company. And also this idea of engaging students because you essentially have a team. It's like a company, you're the CEO. So it's not any different uh, in that respect. But, you know, maybe it's slower just because of research not being the same pace as product development. And in fact, we do some of that product development at Duke as long as we maintain uh, our conflict of interest in, in an appropriate way. The entrepreneurship, I have to say, sometimes I resist it because 
I think there's something called, you know, cognitive load. <laughs> Every time you have to do something, like, you know, if you drive your car to work, you probably go the same way. If someone said to me, go another way, I'd be like, no. I think it's similar with entrepreneurship, right? If you're doing one thing and then all of a sudden someone says, do this other thing, you're like, why? And I often say, well, I'm not the expert. And then I realized, why not? <laughs> I mean, isn't, isn't life about learning? And so you take baby steps and each process, so, so it's like someone says, run a marathon. You're going to say no. But if someone says, run the first mile, and then you run the first mile, and then you run the second mile, that, you know, sort of gives you more confidence. So I would say the research leads to sort of the regulatory, the regulatory leads to product development, then marketing and sustainability and all of that. So it is this process that you're not thinking, oh, I have to do all of this today, but you're breaking it to a modular part, a modular parts where you can tackle each problem as they evolve. And I think also having students around you is amazing because I feel more secure. <laughs> um, they're invincible. I'm not. And so they take things in stride. I freak out. And I think it's that sense of community. I rely on them to tell me, you know, it's okay. It's all right. Um, we, can, we can do this. And that's essentially how Kala Health came to be. I even resisted opening a company. I wanted to license the technology. I was like, I don't have time for that. But we had to because no one wanted to take on something, no matter how cool it is, if it didn't make money. Wrapping up our conversation, we've talked about really important topics, um, and I think our audience will re really appreciate it. And just to highlight a few, uh, you talked about, you know, Cala Health, how you're redesigning and reimagining the woman's experience of undergoing this health screening and, you know, um, making sure that they're tested early for, you know, any diseases that they might have and we can catch it early. Two is, you know, the two S's, the scalability and sustainability is a really important factor that every, you know, entrepreneur and every company needs to think about, um, especially if they want to make sure their solution is accessible to everyone who needs it. And three, what you just mentioned about, you know, how sometimes you try to resist the entrepreneurship, you know, urge, because sometimes it's true. Like, I am also a victim of this too, where I think of an idea and I just feel kind of paralyzed by it because... How am I going to get that done? It sounds like a really cool, great idea if it does happen, but I wanted to see it tomorrow, but I know that's not possible. So your guidance about, you know, taking it by stride, I think is really important. And everyone who is listening to the podcast should remember that, like you said. So I think to close off the podcast, I think one last thing we would like to ask of you is any parting words for women that are aiming to, you know, disrupt gender inequities in healthcare what would your advice be? We tend to, tend to silo these different disciplines. And I get that, you know, we need more women in STEM, but I feel like we have said that so many times that we need a different narrative. I mean, even the word STEM, I think is a dirty word because it has all these negative connotations. Why don't we focus on the fact that, you know, you can make a meaningful contribution. There's women's health. There's, there's so many ways you can be creative. You, you could have art, an art exhibit. We did that. You can think about the sustainable development goals and how you can create engineering tools to, to have curricula around that for people who live at the level of the problem. There's so many ways you can do that. And I think the anchor is you want to solve a problem and you realize that engineering and anything else are just tools. That's not the destination. That's the road. 
And once you realize that, then it isn't so stifling. And it's not about women in STEM and sort of, you know, sort of saying that over and over again. It's about women and men solving problems that are the most pressing problems in the world. And if you have a social, you know, if you have a conscience, you would think that's important because we're no longer siloed in terms of the global community, as we know with this pandemic. And I think once you sort of embrace that, I think the rest follows. And so we can't just isolate because sometimes I think the women we isolate say, we're not like, why do you treat us like we're sort of different from everyone? We want to be like everyone. We don't need to be singled out. And so how do you do that? Um, because I think a lot of times we're like, okay, let's have a social hour with women. Do we expect them to be more vulnerable that they can't handle being in a mixed, you know, uh, gender crowd? So it's those kinds of things that I think we have to debunk and uh, give them space and confidence, but do that through uh, an authentic experience as and get the pull instead of push. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.